as we practice mindfulness of breathing. We're developing the qualities of sati and sampajanya. Mindfulness and clear comprehension of the feeling, the sensation of the in and out breath. It's this quality that we <coughs> develop that we call the knowing. Sometimes in Thailand they called it the one who knows, the Puru. We're knowing the breath, the in-breath, the out-breath, <coughs> just that much. We don't have to analyze the breath when we begin this practice. We don't have to think about it or form opinions about it. Simply to know it and to experience that quality of just knowing or pure knowing. Sometimes people think meditation is a practice we do to solve our problems. So if you begin your meditation with that thought, straight away you might begin to analyze various issues that come up as you're meditating, memories that prompt emotional reactions, good things, happy things, inspiring things, more unhappy, unpleasant memories, prompts us to think we have to solve something or work something out. Another way of looking at it is when you're meditating on the breath with mindfulness and clear comprehension, the mind is not creating any problems. That's the point. The more we can maintain the mindfulness and clear comprehension, the less problems there will be.
to do this successfully, we have to learn how to train the mind. Keep nudging it back to the breath. We have to keep reminding ourselves to let go of all the other issues that seem so important as soon as we begin practicing mindfulness of the breathing. We really don't need to plan what we're going to do tomorrow or later on next week when we're practicing mindfulness of breathing. And we can afford to drop the memories about the past events. We have to remind ourselves of this, to drop the past and stop planning about the future. The more we practice this, the more confidence we'll gain in our ability to drop the past, drop the future, and stick with the breath in the present moment. The more we stay with the breath, then the more we experience the feelings of calm and the more relaxed body and mind. And the mind is brightened, energized. The less we expend our energy on endless thinking in a distracted way, the more the energy of the mind gathers in one place, at the tip of the nostrils, where we're following the feeling of the in-breath, the out-breath. As we experience that gathering of energy, the mind brightens.
we feel more peaceful as we've let go of the different distractions, particularly concern about the senses. We're not looking to see anything or hear anything. Drop the concern about taste, smell and touch, sensations coming through the skin. All our attention, our interest just focuses on the in-breath, the out-breath. So the mindfulness and clear comprehension is present, conditioning the mind in a very wholesome way over and over again. And the more we practice like this, the better we get at keeping the mind on the breath, knowing the breath, not letting the mind wander away into distraction or daydreaming or sleepiness. So it stays within its one <clears throat> sphere, the breath. The breath can change in its appearance as we focus on it. It can become very refined, very subtle. We can notice the breath traveling around the body. So the body, the whole body becomes apparent as we're sitting. We're aware of the breast body and the sense of ease and relaxation that comes as we stick just to the breath as the one thing that the mind knows. If we keep practicing like this, on and on then we can experience some steadiness stillness of mind where that normal movement of thought and all the normal intentions planning what we're going to do next thinking about the next thing creating stories, telling stories, begins to subside. And the mind is just peaceful with the breath. Maybe a few thoughts come up, but they don't seem to bother us, as long as we stay within the sphere of the breath. You'll notice if you lose mindfulness and clear comprehension, the mind wanders out of its sphere. Immediately the sense of calm starts to subside. 
And as restlessness or distraction takes over, the mind is no longer under our control. It's gone. So you could say it's not safe anymore. When mindfulness and clear comprehension are with the breath from moment to moment, then you know the mind and the breath are right there. And it is safe, whatever else is going on outside or elsewhere in the world. It's like being in the hall on a day when it's raining. As long as you stay within the four walls of the hall, you can be sitting or walking, you don't get wet. As soon as you walk out of the hall, you get wet. Our first aim in meditation is just is to learn how to train the mind to stay with its object and not create problems out of the thoughts and the memories and the different sense contact that comes up. Once we've achieved some steadiness of mind, then our wisdom faculty can function well. And then we can consider things, but from a place of safety and peace. And Pochara said, when we contemplate, then we rely on sati, sampajanya, and wisdom, working together like three friends. It's possible to do a lot more when you have a few friends with you. As we know, when there's a job of work to be done, so lifting something heavy, you have a few different pairs of hands to lift the heavy object, it can be done. If you lift the object on your own, maybe you can't, can't do it. Once the mind becomes calm and steady, then we can train in wise reflection, looking at our experience. We can start to separate out some of this mental proliferation that we're normally engaged with, what we call papancha. It's a mixture of tanha, ditti, and mana. It's how this self-view or self-identity manifests from moment to moment through our day. It's a mixture of desires, conceit, views, attachment to views. And they're all linked, quite difficult to see beyond them. 
but when we experience some calm and steadiness of mind as we meditate, that detached awareness has the effect of dispersing the solidity of some of that papancha. A lot of our craving that we experience is just the habit of wanting. We've been around in the world for so long that we always got we've got used to just wanting new things, more things, better things, different things. Let's see habit of mind, the energy of always looking for something new to stimulate interest and desire, maybe get some more pleasure, or to get rid of the things we don't like, the unpleasant experiences. Unless we develop this mindfulness steadiness of mind we'll probably never see this habit at work we just follow along with our craving and it's endless and Bocha used to say it's like a cat a stray cat if it comes round your kuti or like those parrots they come round to your kuti you keep feeding them, well, they'll keep coming back. And they'll make it their home and expect more and more. And the more you've got, the more they'll eat. If you don't feed them, then quickly they'll move on somewhere else. As we meditate, we're observing that process, unraveling it to ourselves, teaching ourselves. And after a while contemplating, your mind becomes tired of following the endless craving. So it's willing to let go of some of the, those desires and the wanting. As you experience a state of peace, then you've got something to compare with. And you can see that craving is not peaceful. It disturbs the mind fuels more endless thinking and different emotional states. One of the things it does is fuel our views, our attachment to views, clinging to views. And views are formed by our experience of craving. So what we found pleasurable before will begin to form a view that that's experience that object, that thing is good for us, what we want, what we like, what we found unpleasant before will form a view that it's bad for us, we don't want, don't like it. After a while the view becomes established in the mind, so we don't even have to experience any pleasure or pain, we just view 
that object in that way. Any kind of sense object that's given us pleasure becomes part of our personality of who we are. This is what I like. This is right for me, good for me. So any time you can't get what you feel is right for you and good for you, it's a problem. The mind is not happy. Or if we get caught into a fixed view about something that we feel is wrong for us, bad for us, not right, the same. That becomes our fixed view. So we steer away from that thing or that person or that experience with the view that it's it's bad, it's wrong for us, it's not what we want. So it becomes who we are. So all the preferences and prejudices, likes and dislikes we've built up through our life, they're all they all become part of who we are. Our personality. <clears throat> it's only really through developing mindfulness, clear comprehension, wisdom, that we can see through that, see beyond it. Maybe see that it is just mental proliferation. It's just the problems of the mind. Conceit is the same. Conceit is like a, a stamp we put on our experience with a sense of self. Now, this is me, myself. I'm like this, I'm like that. And then it's reinforced as we look out and compare with others. They're like this, they're like that. So it's a mixture of craving, conceit, views, they're all mixed in together. When we look at someone else, we might think they're lower than us, or higher than us, worse than us, better than us, the same as us. Not just with people, but with situations and the other and the experiences we have this stamp this label we stamp onto our experience comes up and the buddha is well known for having cut through the caste system <coughs> that was prevalent in india is the time of the buddha and still is to today <coughs> You know, that automatic reaction that I'm of a certain caste, that self-identity, and that someone else maybe is of a higher caste or a lower caste, and that person should behave in a certain way and do certain activities and tasks. I should do certain activities. 
if you're a Brahmin, chant the Vedas and perform rituals. If you're someone from a lower caste, you do menial work and so on. But the same wisdom that the Buddha brought to bear in teaching Dhammavinaya still applies to us today. Maybe we don't have a formalized caste system, but our society is still divided into groups, factions, class, political groups, ethnic groups, and so on. So conceit is still there, playing on our mind. It's a well-known story about Lumpoliam. One time was walking around the monastery at Wapapong, collecting twigs and branches that had fallen off a tree, minding his own business and just getting on with a what you might call a menial task. And a group of lay people came to visit the monastery and they wanted to meet the abbot. So they saw this old monk in a corner of the monastery picking up branches and just immediately assumed he was just, you might say, any old monk. They walked over and said, do you know where the abbot's kuti is? Because their aim was to find the abbot, the teacher. So he pointed to the abbot's kuti and carried on picking up branches. And off they went. They probably thought somebody picking up branches cannot be a very well-known or enlightened teacher or wise teacher. Perhaps thought it was some old granddad who just ordained, didn't know what else to do. A conceit is like that. It's like a label you, you stick on to a person or a situation. And a lot of what we do as monks, work that we do, can often be quite ordinary, or we might say menial, cleaning, cleaning up after other people, washing up, cleaning up, keeping the place tidy, repaired. If you're not aware of conceit as you're doing those tasks, you may immediately drop into a thought, this is beneath me, I shouldn't do this. Even as a monk, we have a hierarchical system based on who ordains first, who ordains after. Perhaps you have the thought, I'm a terror, I shouldn't be sweeping a floor or picking up some rubbish. Or sometimes it can be the other way around. Perhaps as a junior monk, you have the thought, I shouldn't be teaching, I'm just a junior monk. As we're meditating, we're observing how conceit and views stimulate the mind. 
create the mental proliferation. Or maybe you are just sweeping the floor what's going on in your mind at that time. Is the mind grumbling or complaining, caught into negative views because of conceit? Maybe we look at senior monk and think he must have an easy life. All he has to do is talk to the lay people, goes to visit different places, goes here, goes there. This is just the labels that we put onto the experience. The reality is it feeds mental proliferation, perpentia. This is the <clears throat> the field of our inquiry, see, as we meditate, calming the mind and investigating the Dhamma, seeing through often you know, like a brick wall of opinions, views, conceit, sense of self, just feeds endless thinking and different emotional reactions. Somebody just says a few words or does some action and the mind proliferates about it for, for a long time after. We see something desirable or think about something desirable that we haven't got and we get infatuated with it and can think about it for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. And the only way to understand mental proliferation for what it is is learning to still the mind, quieten the mind, bring up mindfulness, and then with wisdom reflect on it to see its true nature. And the one thing you can be sure of is that it's all very unsure, not certain. It changes. The mood changes, the mental proliferation changes all the time. The thoughts coming up, going, the opinions change, the views change. With conceit, one of the interesting things living in the Sangha is you've always got changing Sangha members. So as monks come to visit or new monks are ordained. So this little hierarchy moves around. At one moment you're sitting at one, one part of the line, sometimes at the back, sometimes at the front, and then it can change. Or you go to another monastery where there's more senior monks or less senior monks and it can change. One day you're the senior monk, the next you're not. One day you're the most junior monk, the next day you're not. If you can catch that with mindfulness and wisdom, it doesn't have to be a problem. But if you can't, then it is a problem. 
always comparing, expecting something, and then things go differently than you expect. said, just keep reflecting on the uncertainty of things. It starts to break down the papancha. It's not sure, it's not certain. Impermanent, it's anicca, anicca. As you meditate, see how when mindfulness is strong and continuous, the mind can be so peaceful, spacious, empty of any kind of attachments, it seems. So you can have the view, oh, I'm really getting somewhere with my practice. Nothing's bothering me, no problems. And then only a few hours later, the whole experience has changed. Maybe there's a change in your physical state, become tired. Or maybe some external stimulation brings you a, a mood to experience, and in a sense impression that you have to deal with, and suddenly your mind is back to full of craving, conceit, and views. It's so uncertain. But at the very least, you can bring up that reflection. It's not sure. Most of us, when we begin practice, we have our fixed views and opinions about the practice, what we want from it, what we expect from it. And notice how they change over the years. Remember the first couple of years I was ordained. And a set of views, and I noticed how they were changing. So I made a practice of watching how my views would change. I just assumed they would my views on what is the right way to practice the Vinaya, the right way to meditate, the right meditation object, the amount of time I should meditate, the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things, and so on. I was noticing how I had a whole collection of views and opinions about the practice. Then I brought up this reflection, how are they going to change? So I even expected them to change, and they did. Many, many views changed. See, by the, the difference between when I'd been a monk for one year and the time I was a monk for five years, I could see quite significant changes in my approach, my attitude, what things I thought were important, what things didn't seem important, they changed. would actually laugh at myself when I catch how I something that formerly I seemed to hold on to as very important and after a few years I could look back and say mm, it's not so important remember when I 
began practicing, I had the view that I shouldn't lie down in the middle of the day to rest. I should put all my time into meditation or doing the chores and service for the Sangha, whatever I was assigned. I shouldn't rest. But some days I could see I was getting very tired in the evening. When we come to do an evening meditation, it's very hard to stay away. So I thought maybe I should should rest. So after a couple of years I'd changed, I'd, I decided I should rest. So that became my practice to have a rest in the middle of the day. Then I was thinking about how much I rested. I listened to a talk where I was reminded that the Buddha said, well, just rest long enough for your hair to dry. So you go to, to rest with wet hair. How long does it take for your hair to dry? That's how you should, how long you should rest in the middle of the day. So I thought, I'll practice that. And then some days you can't rest. The conditions are such that you don't have the time to rest. You're working or doing some activity or traveling. And then I remember one day I had to put effort into my meditation in the evening after a day not resting. I had what you might call a good meditation. And the mind became so peaceful and bright and the samadhi so strong. I actually concluded it doesn't really matter whether you have a rest or not. Other factors are perhaps more important. How much effort you put in, how much faith you have. So after that I would laugh at my views and opinions about how much I should be resting in the day or whether I should have a rest or not. This is uncertain, isn't it? It's not sure. Too much rest doesn't work, too little rest doesn't work. What is the right amount? And even if you have an opinion on what is the right amount, maybe the conditions don't allow it anyway. You can't have that much rest. So you learn to be a little bit more flexible, rely more on mindfulness, wisdom, contemplate, rather than sticking rigidly to a certain view about the practice. It's the same with food. When you pick up views about how much you should eat, what kinds of food you should eat or maybe that you should fast more not eat at all as you practice and you learn too much food is not good because it makes you sleepy too little food also makes you sleepy because you lose energy so then I started to fall in line more with Lumpur Cha and perhaps the most important thing is to have the right amount of food enough to keep practicing but not to indulge and end up falling asleep. But what is the right amount of food? On a day when you do no work or exercise, you don't need very much food at all. On a day when you're working hard, doing a lot of walking meditation or something, 
you need more food. On it goes. The views, the opinions change. If you can keep that reflection in mind that everything is not certain, not sure. It's a very valuable way to relieve yourself of a lot of the mental proliferation, mental problems that we keep creating and attaching to. Just wait and see how you feel in the morning will be different by the evening. How you feel this week will be different than next week. How you feel this year will be different from next year. It's not certain. Our practice is not certain. But what is certain is this understanding. You keep applying it, then it's gradually eroding or smoothing away, rubbing away these rigid edges that come with craving, conceit and views. You know, the sense of self that in the beginning of the practice is, is such a problem and leads us to clash with others. You know, we argue over what's right and wrong. The sense of pride and conceit comparing to others, sometimes feeling very successful and good, sometimes feeling like a failure or not very good. If you keep practicing, developing the mindfulness, contemplating, it's like you're eroding away those edges, those rough edges. And the result is the mind becomes something more beautiful, more attractive to yourself, becomes a better place for yourself to be, and a better thing for other people as well. If you get any insights into letting go of proliferation, it's a great joy to yourself to know this proliferation can stop or fade away. Once it's faded away a few times, you don't believe it so strongly when it returns, because you know it's not sure, it's impermanent. I've given you a few reflections for your meditation tonight and we can use the rest of the period just to quietly sit and practice.